You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Weissman. I'm a board member of Variety Children's Charity in whose preview room you're sitting in, in whose lovely reception area you enjoyed beforehand. Um, we're a children's charity that's international in scope, and San Francisco is one of the local venues. We've been around since 1947 here in the city, and we raise money to help children throughout the Bay Area that are disadvantaged, disabled, and at risk. And it's the preview room that helps make that, make that possible for the charity because it underwrites all of their administrative costs. So, for instance, every dime you spend at the bar goes directly to the kids. I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, so welcome. Thanks again. Uh, at this point, I'd like to introduce my husband, Jacob Weissman of Tachyon Publications, who also helps make this uh, program po possible by sponsoring us. So, Jacob. <laughs> I guess uh, Terry asked me to say a few words about uh, Tom Dish, who is um, one of our one of Ta one of Tachyon's authors and a very good friend of mine, and probably someone who meant something to uh, to a few of the people who are here tonight. And it's really um, hard to know what to say for those of you who don't know uh, Tom Dish. Uh, committed suicide last week on uh, July 4th. And so we've been um, dealing with that uh, this last week quite a bit. And there's been a lot of uh, support from the community and, uh, and such. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't want to bring the, this event down too much. Um, you know, Tom had been in, uh, in in poor health for a while. He had been depressed uh, since his uh, partner, uh, the poet Charles Naylor, uh, died a few years ago. Uh, we had kind of hoped that Tom was uh, making a recovery. We 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 had just published his uh, last novel, his short story collection from the be his best work in the last twenty years is coming out uh, in a few months and by all accounts Tom was feeling a lot better um, and this was very uh, very sad thing I know uh, Terry you knew Tom pretty well I didn't know Tom that well no. I know um, I mean I had met him I just felt like everybody else it was like our field suffered a grave blow uh, you know, there is, a, there is a high end of science fiction, and Tom was one of the people that sort of defined what that was. He wasn't one of the most popular authors in the field. In, in fact, he was uh, pretty much what you'd call a writer's writer and somebody who was well-respected outside the field of science fiction, and, um, but it's a tremendous blow to, to what we are and what we do, you know. That's how I feel about it. Terry wrote the... Uh the back cover copy to uh, to uh, to Tom's last book. I really thought you uh, 
that you had known him well when you were in <laughs> days in New York. I really did. No, I told you that, but that was not the case. Uh, I knew anything to get the job. <laughs> I knew him for a little while. He was uh, the uh, theater critic for The Nation for a number of years, and I, he he uh, I, he would take me to plays occasionally, and, and um, you know, uh, I knew him like everybody else, but I wasn't one of his, his close companions. Mm -hmm. But like I say, as somebody in the field of science fiction, it's like, it's like the top of the tree gets lopped off, and you feel it. I know, uh, Jay, you, you wrote uh, on your blog about it uh, yep. the other day. And I never met him personally, um, but he's one of the writers that stands out to me from when I was first reading science fiction as what we would now call a young adult, although we called it a kid back then. <laughs> and, you know, specifically stories like The Puppies of Terra. And so his influence, from my point of view, as someone who came along many, many years after he did and, and never really stood close to his shadow was on uh, what Terry called the high end of the field, the, 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 the sense of the field as having a literary identity and having aspirations that went beyond our pulp origins. Yeah, yeah. Um, we always felt that Tom went kind of way beyond them, not just, he wasn't just stretching science fiction to meet a kind of, um, kind of, kind of literary uh, equivalence. He, he was writing literature, which was, um, you know, made it, made it very interesting. Cause it, 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 I think the uh, people outside of science fiction circles never knew exactly what to make of it because when they came to Tom's work, they weren't slumming like they were when they would come to other people's work, <laughs> who, who are you know, equally as, as famous in our field. Yeah, so, you know, I just felt like I, it was good to just acknowledge this loss that we had, but not to dedicate this program to Tom, but in a sense, every, every program of science fiction that has any pretensions to quality, which we try to do here, is owes a, lot to, <laughs> owes a lot to Tom Dish and the, the, that whole crowd of the new wave that sort of, you know, from Ursula Le Guin to to Dish, to Moorcock, to Platt, to, you know, and um, they were, um, they were important. They shaped what science fiction is today, and, and Tom did that often as, in a negative as well as a positive way. He was the fiercest critic of science fiction. He was. Uh, and we're going to miss him. Okay. Having said that, um, Welcome to um, SF and SF, and thanks again for being here. Um, as we, uh, Jacob is uh, Tachyon host program. Rena's uh, the Variety uh, Children's Charity gives us the space, and the science fiction community itself supports us, and we try to bring in writers from around the country and from here in the Bay Area that uh, that exemplify what what the field's about and what we're trying to do. So. Uh, Thanks for being here, and as usual, you know the drill. We're asking people to turn on their cell phones in case they get a better offer. And um, we'll begin tonight. We have two readers. We're gonna, the, our first reader is a woman who sort of um, burst on the field, I think pretty much with flying in place, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Uh, which was about 12, 15 years Nin ago. 1992, it was a long time ago. Right. <laughs> 
And since then is one of the most respected, if not uh, perhaps not the most prolific and the most the best known outside the field, but someone who in the field um, has garnered a great deal of respect. And uh, um, it's my pleasure to welcome here this evening Susan Pollock. Thank you very much. So we were sitting at dinner and talking about what we were going to read, and I said, oh, you know, I'm going to read funny excerpts from a, you know, a light story, and Terry's like, no, don't read excerpts, read a whole story, and I said, well, you know, I could read one that's sort of funny, and he's like, no, it's literature, we're not, you know, we're here to suffer, so um, I was, <laughs> so I have been convinced to read um, the shortest and also the darkest story in, in my story collection, The Fate of Mice, which is published by Tachyon. Um, and the backstory to this, um, and this, this, is, this is true, the story itself isn't, but I found out um, a couple of years ago the very disturbing piece of information that uh, a, a friend of mine and someone I admired a great deal and cared about a great deal um, as a child had burned kittens alive. And he is now the kind of person whose idea of a vacation is going to Haiti to build houses for people who live in cardboard boxes. Okay, so I was wrestling with this, how do you get from point A to point B? Um, and I'd been wrestling with this and wrestling with it and I then I, put my back out and was on muscle relaxants, gorked out on muscle relaxants, and this story came out at basically in one sitting. Um, so this is my drug story, you know, I'm the woman who doesn't even drink beer because I fall over, and you know. Um, I, a friend of mine said, yeah, that's why the romantic poets did opium, you know. Um, I should also mention on a stylistic level, this is a pretty much conscious attempt to write an imitation of the prose of John Crowley, whose prose I love, and I have no idea how well it works on that level. But anyway, here is Sarl's heart. He found the girl crouched in a ditch by the side of the deserted road, using a jagged rock to try to sever the muscled cords that connected her heart to her body. She was bleeding, of course, and she was weeping, too, her hair a brown tangled mass, yellowish-green snot running down her face, her hands slimy with dirt and gore. She might have been eight or ten, half his own age, or older than that, but starved, her thin ribs showing through a tear in her shirt. The tear, he guessed, had once been a hole she'd made for her heart to go through, but had widened with wear and weather. It now showed so much of her scrawny chest that he wondered why she wore a shirt at all. The shirt might have been pink once. She tried to cut the pulsing cords, sawing at them, and when that didn't work, she began to bash them with the rock, crying out in pain with each impact. Don't do that, he said, and she looked up, quivering, flinching away as if from a blow. He himself had just walked ten miles or so, fleeing the fire he had set, and was pleasantly tired from the exercise. The stink of charred fur still clung to him, heady incense. Can't live without a heart. She squinted at him. Hurts too much. He inclined his head politely. You born that way? There were all kinds of stories, people born with their skeletons outside their bodies, people born with two heads or none. He'd seen a lot of other freaks, but this was the first that truly interested him. 
When she bent her head in a shy nod, he said, Where are your people? Don't want me. I'm a freak. Where are yours? He shrugged. Never had none. Gave me to the north wind when I was but a baby. Been wandering ever since. You hungry? He reached out his hand to her. She didn't take it, but clung to the rock. Her heart pulsed, throbbing. You smell, she said. Yeah, I know. No chance to wash. What's that smell from? Kittens in a barn. I burned them. They screamed, but only for a second. One hand came up from the rock now to cover her mouth, and her eyes brimmed over again. Her heart writhed for a moment before it resumed its steady beat, and he smiled for the first time since he'd seen her. That hurt you, huh? You'd save them if you could. You're a monster. They'll get you, the freak patrol. They'll try to get me. They'll try to get you, too. She raised her chin. Nobody out here anyway, is there? All the normals went away. For now. They'll be back. They never go away for good. He knelt down next to her, mind racing. He made his voice as gentle as he could. Listen, we can help each other. She shrank away again. Won't help you burn cats. No, no, no. I know you won't. You'll help me not burn them. She squinted. How? You'll listen to me. He'd always been smart, always been able to think quickly. It was how he'd lived this long. You'll listen to what I want to do. And it'll hurt you, but not as much as it would hurt them, the animals and whatnot. And then I won't have to do it, because hurting you will be enough. And I'll help you hide from the normals, get you food and that. You wouldn't last on your own. Me neither. We'll both last longer this way. She pulled her knees up as if to protect the heart now nestled between them and her chest. Don't want to hurt. Told you that. Want to stop hurting. Gotten hurt already. How? She had her own stories. Of course she did. She could feed him that way, too. She looked away, poking it with sticks. My heart. Throwing rocks at it. Calling me names. Trying to hurt me like you want to do. He couldn't see her heart now, but he knew it was writhing again. He smiled. That pain ever save anything? Save kittens? Save, oh, baby birds? Let me tell you what I did one time. Stop it. Her voice was a thin howl. He went on, implacable. Let me tell you what I want to do next. Let me tell you this idea I have about horses. An old horse, an old mare just up the road here. A sorrel mare. I want to take red-hot irons and poke out her eyes and then stick a red-hot iron up. She was lying on the ground now, sideways, her heart still hidden, but all of her was writhing, hands clenched over her ears, tears streaming down her face. Stop it. Stop it. All right, he said, as lightheaded as if he'd been drinking wine. You just did. You stopped it. Look at me. He reached out a tender hand to touch her knee, just barely brush it. She flinched away, but he reached out again, and this time she let his hand stay there, although she whimpered. Look at me, he said again, and she did, finally. 
Her eyes were a muddy brown, red with crying. You saved that sorrel mare. Just now, by listening, by letting me hurt you, by letting me see how it hurt you. You saved her. I won't touch her now, I promise. I don't need to anymore. It's done. You did that. You're a monster. I am, but I always tell the truth. Everything hurts you. Everything hurts your heart because it's out there where everything can touch it, right? She nodded as he had known she would, and he removed his hand from her knee. I'll never touch you again, not unless you want it. All I'll use is words. Listen, you cut your heart away, you die. You don't hurt anymore, but things die because I kill them. You walk away from me and live, you still hurt, and things still die because I kill them. You stay with me, you still hurt, but those things don't die. You save them, and maybe you save me, too, from the freak patrol. She was listening, although she hadn't said anything. Her eyes were fixed on his. She had lowered her knees a little, and he could see her heart beating more calmly now. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a translucent stone he'd found weeks ago, a rock the color of the sea. He hadn't known until now why he'd been carrying it with him. When she saw it, her eyes widened and she smiled, startled, and he said, See, there's beauty too in the world. Good things, not just hurtful ones. Reasons to stay. Your heart is beautiful. The smile faded. No, it ain't. I say it is, Sorrel. That's what I'm going to call you. Your heart is beautiful to me. Your heart is a reason to stay in the world. Come on now, get up, and we'll go get food. She couldn't get up. She was, after all, too weak from lying in the ditch and trying to hurt herself. She'd been there for hours, maybe days. At last, he asked permission to pick her up. And she gave it, and he lifted her in his arms and carried her, his own heart filled with unaccustomed peace. She weighed hardly anything. He looked down at her, her head cradled on his shoulder in sleep, and he wanted to kiss her forehead. But he didn't, because he has, hadn't asked her leave. <coughs> they were together for years after that. He called her Sorrel, and she called him Quartz. He grew into a quiet man, a man neither thick nor thin, with hair the color of wheat, and eyes that gazed into far distances, and sometimes went dead and blank. And at those times he would tell her what he wanted to do, tell her his yearning dreams, tell her about torn skin and roasted flesh, and organs torn from their bony cradles, and she would weep and moan and clutch herself until he was done. When he was done, he would dry her tears and tell her he loved her, and if indeed he was capable of love, then it was true. He was true to his promise, certainly. He never performed the deeds he described to her in such vivid detail. And certainly he found her beautiful, and not just her heart. For if he had grown into a man few people noticed, she had grown tall and lovely, her hair a reddish-brown cascade of curls, and her body as graceful as autumn aspens. 
And yet he kept his own promise not to touch her until the night when she crept into his bed and asked him to. Then he did his clumsy best to give her pleasure, and she did her best to teach him, although pain came far more naturally to him and fear to her. He had been used to meeting his own needs with his own hands, and he found the rhythms of another's flesh unnerving, as unnatural as walking on some other creature's legs. When Sorrel cried out beneath him and then began to weep, he thought that he had broken his promise, that he had hurt her with something other than words. He could feel her heart crushed between them beating frantically, and he feared that she would die. But at last she opened her eyes and laughed up at him, and he kissed her on the forehead then, as he had wanted to so many years before. They were in a barn that night, much like the one where he had burned the cats so long ago. The farmhouse was deserted, and Quartz and Sorrel had raided it for quilts to wrap around themselves and books to use as fuel. They would not destroy the house itself, which might give needed shelter to other freaks some other day. The normals were long gone, the place bereft of food and livestock. This family might not be coming back. It was dangerous in, to linger in places known abandoned, because that was where the freak patrols hunted, knowing anything left alive would be twisted and diseased. Sometimes there were tales of bands of freaks, groups who had ganged together for protection, but they were hunted and slaughtered, always, no safety in numbers, and even if the stories were, prevented to, were invented to prevent such bands from forming, Quartz and Sorrel put their trust in speed and secrecy. They kept always on the move, stopping in normal towns when they had no other choice. At such times, they would wrap Sorrel's heart in a shawl and pretend that it was a nursing infant, and when townsfolk asked to see the child or commented with narrowed eyes on how it never cried, Quartz would bully and bluster, cursing them for daring to disturb his wife, showing them his scarred fists. Did they want to fight? Did they? Dared they suggest that he, so clearly normal, would wed some filthy freak or father one? The challengers backed down, always, not from Quartz's words, which meant little, for there were those who would rape any freak, male or female, left unprotected, and countless freaks had been born to normal parents, but from his fierce body and from his eyes. He would let himself go stone cold then, let the cruelty come out, and they could see it, plain enough. Sometimes he almost wished for a fight, but always when the attackers backed off, he and Sorrel fled. There had been close calls, too many to remember. Always he marveled that no one followed them. And sometimes they would near a town or enter one and hear reports of what had just occurred. A shopkeeper saying, that tinker with horns and a tail, we hung him sure enough or children laughing about last night's sport. The lady who crowed like a rooster, we chased her through the streets until the dogs got her. Or women gossiping idly in the market. Oh, of course they had to kill the devil child born with a fish's tail and killed the mother too. It was only a mercy. Who knows what else she might have birthed. And sometimes they heard nothing, but saw instead gutted three-legged corpses by the side of the road, heads with no mouths rutting, 
rotting on fence posts, misshapen bodies dragged behind carts. All such towns they skirted or left as quickly as their legs would carry them. And soon enough, Sorrel told him, if that's normal, you must be normal too, Quartz. Freak only that you found a way not to do it. They were curled in a ditch then, not so different from the one where he had found her, save that it was night and warm and stars and a round moon shone overhead. No, they hurt freaks. It's the normal I want to hurt, what's whole and healthy. She shook her head. No different. You could, you could live normal. Give me up, give up the danger, cut my heart from my body and leave me, live in some town, take joy from their hunts and hatreds. None, he answered, stubborn. I'd have no joy in that, only in hurting what they love. Kittens and horses, baby birds, their own children, maybe. They don't love me. Her voice was quiet. Hurting me is what saves the kittens and babies, the things they love that you hunger to hurt instead. That's how you said it worked all those years ago. But they don't love me. They'd kill me if they saw me uncovered. That stopped him. He raised himself on one elbow and peered down at her in the moonlight. He could feel himself frowning. What did she mean? You don't want me to hurt you anymore? You're tired of saving those other creatures when you can't save freaks from the normals? You want to die again? You want me to go live in some town where no, no quartz, none of that, none of it. All I mean, and then she stopped for so long that he thought she'd fallen asleep or forgotten what she meant. All I mean, she said at last, and suddenly he found that he could breathe again, is that when you found me, you said I'd protect you. But you don't need me for that. You don't need me to stop you from being what you are. You could be what you are. You could live among them, and they'd never know no difference. She looked up at him, and he saw tears shining in her eyes. Quartz, when you found me, you said as how you needed me. But you don't, not now. If you're with me, you're with me because you want me. I'm a choice then, after all, not a cage or a burden. You see? He saw. He sat up and took her heart in both his hands and kissed it, feeling it pulse against his lips. I told you it was beautiful, he said. Not long after that, and later they thought perhaps it had happened that very night, she told him she was with child. She could tell, she said, although her belly was still flat. She knew, and she was afraid. Afraid that he'd hurt their child, Quartz thought she meant at first when she told him about the fear. But no, her fear was different. My mama died giving birth to me, she said softly. They were sitting under a rare tree off the road, sitting in the shade. Sometimes a cart passed by, and then they'd nuzzle each other and pretend to be young lovers, which was true enough. She died because I wasn't shaped right, because I tore her up inside, and I almost died too because my heart got trapped inside her. The midwife had to reach in to pull it out, and then my mama died, and my daddy and my aunt had to pay the midwife all the money they had not to kill me too, not to tell anyone what had happened. They had to run. 
And finally, they were tired of running, tired of having to hide me, and they left me behind, abandoned me so they could live as normals. We won't leave our baby, Sorrel. What if I die? What if the baby dies? Having babies is hard work. No midwife will help me, Quartz. We don't have money to pay anybody to buy silence. We'll figure something out. Hush now, hush, Sorrel. But fear rose in him, too. They couldn't always be moving with a child. They'd have to settle somewhere, and where was safe? We'll go to the mountains, the high places. We'll find our way there before you're too big. That's where the worst freaks are, she said. The ones who eat people, the monsters who eat us too. Oh, Quartz, you've heard the stories. Tales, that's all they are. Tales told by normals, and how much truth can those hold? Who's been to the mountains and come back to tell the tales? Nobody, because they get eaten. Her heart fluttered wildly, and he put out a hand to soothe it. Sorrel, hush. They don't come back to say, so we don't know. Maybe they don't come back because it's so beautiful, because they're happy. Maybe they don't come back because, because the other freaks welcome them. Maybe all the freaks there are the ones who've gone to have their babies in peace, like we'll do, Sorrel. She shuddered, her heart still racing, and maybe there's no freak settlement in the mountains at all. Maybe the normals put that story out so they can trap and kill any freaks who try to go there, jump them on the road. He'd thought that, too, more than once. It was why he had never suggested going there until now. He closed his eyes. We have months. We have months to get there. We'll find a side road, a secret way, a cave. We'll be careful. And so they began to walk towards the mountains, visible only as a faint blue line in the distance, and then only in the clearest weather. They walked as quickly as they could, and yet they found the going slow. Sorrel was sick and grew weak. She craved foods quartz could only get in towns, butter and cheeses and cured meats, and he had to take to thieving to meet her appetites. Her ankles swelled as her stomach did, and sometimes when she cried out in pain, Quartz found himself cursing the child, wishing that this baby would either lose itself or come more easily. He himself was afraid, afraid. He had never wished to nurture any small thing, only to harm it, and he found himself craving release, longing to torture rabbits he startled in the fields or the piglets they passed being driven to market, hungering for the feel of blood throwing, flowing through his fingers, for the stench of burned flesh and the agonized screams of the slaughtered. He shared one such fantasy with Sorrel, but her grimaces were so dreadful, her heart so reckless in its pounding, that he stopped, knowing his own face ashen. She could not protect him anymore. Her world was all the child within her belly, and so must his be. And so he tried to content himself with hunting game she did not wish to eat, with skinning fowl whose smell, as they roasted, made her wretch. And yet the baby clung, and her belly grew, and the mountains grew nearer. They walked uphill now, more and more slowly, and their choices of road narrowed. Quartz scouted other paths as Sorrel slept, but found only wildernesses of brambles, pathless forests, sheer rocky slopes. 
places that would be difficult for him to travel, impossible for her. There was one road only now, and he thought of the tales, the tales of how no one survived in the mountains, and dread settled in his gut, as heavy as if he, too, were carrying a child. There was one road only, and it led to a small village they must pass to reach the heights. They arrived there at dusk, Sorrel exhausted and dragging. They stood in a square surrounded by houses and barns. Quartz could hear bleeding and neighing and had to close his eyes to fight his lust for torn flesh, for pain and blood. He opened them only when he heard panting next to him, Sorrel fighting for breath. He put his hand on the cloth covering her heart. It beat alarmingly, very, very fast, and then too slow. The baby, she said, I think, too early, he said. It's too early, Sorrel. It can't be coming yet. Only seven months had passed, and they weren't in the mountains. They weren't safe yet. Babies come when they will, someone said, and Quartz looked up to find a woman in front of them, staring at them in the fading light. She was wearing a red kerchief, and immediately the color made him yearn for blood. What's that your wife, hold, wife is holding in her arms? Quartz swallowed, an, an infant, we. She's so big with one child and has another, so small. Wet nurse, Sorrel said, her voice somewhere between a whisper and a moan. My sister's child. I had a baby died, and my sister died, and I took hers, and then we made this one who's coming, see? Good wife, I need to lie down now. Quartz had no idea if the woman in red had been convinced by Sorrel's explanation or not, although it was far cleverer than anything he'd have been able to invent, quick brain or no. I can work, he said, his voice tight, to help, to pay for any help you give us. I'm good with my hands. I can thatch roofs, slaughter animals. No one was listening to him. The woman in red had taken Sarl's arm with a clucking sound and was leading her towards one of the houses. Quartz followed numbly. How many people lived here? All he had seen so far was this one woman whose kerchief looked so much like blood, and he could kill her, sure, could wring her scrawny neck as if she were only a chicken. He let himself picture that for a moment, imagine how her spine would feel snapping under his hands. He let the lust fill him, and then Sorrel screamed. Sorrel screamed, and he ran to follow the sound, found, him, found himself standing in one corner of a lamp-lit room as the woman carried in towels and basins of water, and Sorrel thrashed on the bed, moaning, and now the woman was doing something between Sorrel's legs, and now Sorrel was screaming again, and now the woman was pulling her wrap away, trying to give her more freedom of movement, maybe, pulling away her clothing to reveal her heart beating there, her heart pounding on her chest, just as Quartz had seen it that day so many years ago when Sorrel had sat in the ditch, battering herself with the jagged rock. He had to protect her. He had promised. He had promised, and he had never failed in that promise, whatever else he had done or not done. He had promised that only he would hurt her, no one else. The woman with the red kerchief was reaching for Sorrel's heart as Sorrel screamed, and Quartz leaped forward, tears choking him, and a rush of blood and something else poured out of Sorrel, blood, 
too much blood, and the woman grabbed Sarl's heart and Quartz tackled her, made her let go of Sarl, dragged her as far away from the birthing bed as he could to protect the beating heart there. And then he strangled the woman in the red kerchief, killed her as he had wished to do since the moment he first saw her. He dug his fingers into her throat and felt her own heart stop beating. This wasn't even cruelty. It was justified. She had reached for Sarl's heart before ever he reached for hers. The lamp had gone out, kicked over or snuffed by the wind of the fight. Quartz smelled blood and shit, heard only a thin wailing cry. Sarl, he said. He could not hear her heart. Sarl, he began crawling towards the bed on all fours, afraid that he would trip and fall on her, hurt her if he tried to walk in this crowded, wet darkness. Sarl, can you hear me? And then he saw flickering light outside, heard voices and footsteps, and here were more lamps now, held by a group of men who pressed in through the door, who had cudgels and knives. Quartz could see the metal shining in the lamplight. And they were surrounding him and surrounding the bodies, and he heard someone say, The baby's alive. Little girl. Looks normal, but who can tell? The mother wasn't. We heard the screaming, one of the men said to Quartz, and Quartz did not know why his voice was so kind. We came to help you. You got them, didn't you? Nobody rights lived in this place for years, so when we heard voices, we knew it must be freaks. What? Quartz said. The man who had spoken to him was holding up the red kerchief. Someone else kicked the dead body, and through the gaps between people's legs, Quartz saw now that there had been no hair or skull under that kerchief, but only brain, a gray, wrinkled thing that maybe had pulsed once like Sarl's heart, but now was still. A foot came down and ground the brain into slimy mush. Freak, someone said, and Quartz closed his eyes. The woman in the red kerchief had been reaching for Sorrel's heart in love or joy or any way knowledge, not hatred. She had been reaching out to claim one of her own. He had understood nothing he had seen. Must have holed up here to have the whelp, someone grunted. Some sicko raped her, maybe, or she got knocked up by one of her own who didn't want her, and this one came, too, to help her. They hadn't connected Quartz to the women yet. Of course not. He looked normal. Now someone was talking to him. You found them here and took care of them, right? Good man. Wish we'd gotten here in time to help. Give me the baby, Quartz said. He forced himself to stand up. Give me the baby if she's normal. How was he going to feed her? Give me the baby. She's mine. My spoil for what I've done for killing those two. The words caught in his throat. Give me the baby and bring me some milk. There are animals here. Find one I can milk. You want to raise a, whelp, a freak whelp? Be a while before you can use her. Laughter. But they brought her the tiny, mewling, naked thing. Someone had cut the cord that had bound her to her mother, as Sorrel had so long ago wanted to cut the cord that held her to her own heart. The baby was howling, and Quartz took off his shirt and wrapped her in it and looked down at her, knowing that he was truly a freak now, too, because now he held his own heart in his hands. He cradled in his arms what was most precious and fragile, what could most easily be taken from him, 
what, if it was hurt, would cause him the deepest and most unending pain. He must not weep, because the men around him would not understand. He bent and kissed the baby's forehead, and when they snickered, felt the old blood fury seize him. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.